With gender confusion and a push for transgender rights both on the rise, many are calling this the transgender moment. What is giving rise to this moment and how are Catholics called to respond to it? Today we'll talk about those questions and more with our special guest, Dr. Ryan Anderson, author of When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. I'm Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio, and you're watching Franciscan University Presents. Stay with us. Welcome to Franciscan University Presents. I'm your host, Michael Hernan, Vice President of Strategic Relations here at Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Today we'll be talking about transgenderism. I'm joined in our studios with our, our regular panelists here, uh, Dr. Regis Martin, who's a professor of systematic theology here at Franciscan University, uh, and also a, a special panelist, uh, for us, uh, who is no stranger, who's been on before, uh, Dr. William Newton, again, a theology professor here at Franciscan University, and happy to welcome, although no stranger to campus and no stranger to IBTN, but first time on Presents with us, Dr. Ryan Anderson. Uh, the, uh, you are the, the William E. Simon uh, uh, Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, you've also, you got your bachelor's at Princeton, I believe, yep, and right. a PhD at Notre Dame. Yep. Um, I know you've been to campus uh, a host of times. You are also an honorary alum yep. of the university, and you're also a visiting fellow with our Veritas Center here at Franciscan. You're married and, and are having a child on the yep. way. You have an author or co-author of four books, but today we're going to talk about When Harry Became Sally, uh, the responding to the transgender moment. So thank you. And great. Welcome Happy to, to be here. Yeah. Well, I, I love the title. Um, it, is, it is a great uh, provocative title. Remember the movie well, you know. <laughs> Um, and I, but as as you read this, what really motivated you as you looked at this topic? Because it's sure. it's prolific in the media and the culture today. But what prompted you as you looked at this? So th this was not something that I ever thought um, or planned to do. Uh, five years ago, I wasn't like my next book will be about gender identity and right. transgender identities. Um, but it was something I felt I had to do um, after seeing some YouTube videos of mm. people who had transitioned as teenagers. And then in their mid-20s, sometimes late-20s, early-30s, detransitioned. Okay. Um, and their stories are heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, because here you have people who um, were being advised by the medical establishment um, that the solution to their problems were taking testosterone if they were teenage girls, having surgery to remove um, their breasts, that this would make them whole and happy. Uh, and they believed it because they trusted the medical experts. Mm. And then 5, 10, 15 years later, uh, they're no happier than they were before, and sometimes their their actually struggles have increased. Right, uh, and then they make the decision to detransition to re-identify with their bodies. Mm. Um, and I just thought if if I had the capacity and the opportunity to do something that would be helpful in this area, I should take advantage of it. And, and thankfully, Heritage would allow me to do this type of research to write this. Because it is ultimately very controversial. It, it, in many it, other sadly, institutions. Sure. Um, I would be at risk of losing my job. So I'm, I'm grateful that you know, Heritage yeah. would let me do this type of research, write this type of book, because it's the type of thing that our viewers um, need to be reading. Ordinary Americans need to know what's true when it comes yeah. to gender identity, gender dysphoria, struggles with gender identity. 
um, what's helpful therapies, what's harmful therapies, right, how right. to understand all of this. And so you've done, I, I remember just reading some of the, the, the accounts of those who were witnessing, that were mm -hmm. giving testimony essentially to what that meant. Uh, it is heartbreaking. It, yeah. it, you look at this and say there are so many wounds that are being compounded mm -hmm. uh, by their surgical or, 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 or other hormonal, medical hormonal yeah. treatments. Yeah. Um, so, but but for, for our audience, let's define what is transgenderism because, you know, the, you have many different uh, understandings uh, sure, of what sure. it could be and you've got same-sex attraction, you've got all these things. Right, what, right. What, is, what is gender? So, so there are um, a couple of different um, key terms here. The, the first is gender dysphoria. Yes. Uh, and gender dysphoria is simply the condition of um, feeling as if you're the opposite sex and having deep distress as a result of that. Yeah. Um, but not all of those people identify as transgender. So that's another key term. Yeah. Uh, so transgender would be identifying as the opposite sex. Okay. And not everyone who identifies as transgender has gender dysphoria, right? Because some of them, they don't feel any distress over this. So they, they, they transition, and from their perspective, um, life's going fine. Right. Other people have gender dysphoria, and they know they're not the opposite sex, so they don't identify as transgender. They want to receive help to feel comfortable in their own body. Right, um, right. So then the activists um, who, who are, are distinguishable from either people with gender dysphoria or people who identify as transgender, the vast majority of them aren't activists of any sort, right. but then there is a group of activists who promote a certain worldview. Okay. And I think that's where the word transgenderism yes. um, uh, gets applied. And it's the worldview where our sex is merely assigned at birth. Right? We come out of the womb and a doctor just assigns to us a label, male or female. And therefore, later in life, sex can be reassigned. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a worldview that says um, gender exists primarily between the ears, in our thoughts and in our feelings, and therefore we can change the body uh, to reconfigurate in according to our thoughts and feelings, rather than the historical approach, right. which was we should help people feel comfortable um, in reality, including in the reality of their bodies. Right. Right. And so I, I would say those are kind of the three the key terms term, yes. for viewers. Uh, gender dysphoria, transgender, and then transgenderism, uh, which would be more of the worldview. And I, I frequently just refer to it as a transgender worldview. Yeah, yeah. It, it seems imp important to make that distinction between the ideology yes. and those who are suffering r r real issues, yeah, because our attitude and our response is going to be significantly different yeah. between I those mean, two. So, so, so the vast majority of the book is directed at the ideology and the ideologues. It's directed at the activists who are promoting a certain worldview. Um, but the ordinary people... Uh, who might be experiencing gender dysphoria, parents who might have a child with gender dysphoria, who are simply trying to do the best they can to help their children. Frequently, they're the victims mm -hmm. of the ideologues and the activists because they're being fed bad information. They're being given bad advice. And when they act on that bad advice, it can cause uh, harm mm -hmm. for themselves or for their children. Uh, and so it's very important to draw that distinction and to focus our attention on the activists, on the ideologues, on, on the mistaken worldview, mm -hmm. uh, and promoting what the humane alternative is. And, and why, why is that? Why is that ideology sort of suddenly spawned when presumably people with dysphoria have been around since since human nature has been right. around, and but suddenly we have those people they've existed, and suddenly whoom, an ideology comes up. So a variety of reasons in terms of you know the 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 why and the why now. Um, uh, the most um, kind of acute reason is that. Um, immediately after um, LGBT activists had succeeded in redefining marriage, 
Uh, so this is the June 2015 Obergefell decision by the Supreme Court. They pivoted from the LGB part of the acronym to the T part of the acronym. Uh, and so it's in 2016, just a year later, it's less than a year later, it's May of 2016, that the Obama administration, Department of Education, and Department of Justice um, sent out that Dear Colleague letter, which said all of the nation's schools had to change their bathrooms, locker rooms, sports teams. That very same day, the Obama Department of Health and Human Services issued a new Obamacare mandate, saying that all healthcare plans had to cover transition therapies, both hormonal and surgical, and all um, relevant physicians had to perform them. So if you were a surgeon who would perform a mastectomy or a hysterectomy because of cancer, this mandate would have required you to have performed a hysterectomy or mastectomy for sex reassignment mm -hmm. purposes. Mm -hmm. uh, can I uh, say something? For me, uh, the temptation that I'm struggling uh, manfully to uh, resist is that of trivializing uh, right. the theme, because it strikes me not only as endlessly depressing to think about, but incredulous. I'm astonished mm -hmm. that this would even be uh, an issue, and yet it is, plainly. Uh, why, for heaven's sake? I mean, where did this come from, this phrase, gender dysphoria? I, I confess I've never heard of it until I stumbled upon your book. It's a marvelous book. I mean, it's, it's, it's very compelling. Uh, it clarifies things. But why is this an issue? Why have we permitted these people to co-opt uh, the moral high ground, the conversation sure. about what, what ails human nature? Well, so historically, um, the term up until the most recent edition of um, the DSM, uh, which is the handbook of uh, mental health disorders that um, the American Psychiatric Association puts out. The term was gender identity disorder. Uh, uh -huh. And they felt that that term was stigmatizing hmm. uh, because the last word there was disorder. Yeah. Uh, and so they changed it to gender dysphoria, but then they also changed uh, some of the underlying um, criteria. Uh, so before, with gender identity disorder, it was simply if you felt that you were the opposite right. sex, yeah. that was enough to be diagnosed yeah. with gender identity disorder. But I mean, now it was at that, and yeah. you had to have clinically significant distress right. over this. Yeah. So they, what they wanted to claim was that it's not thinking and feeling that you're the opposite sex right. that is right. problematic, it's the distress. Okay. Yeah. So then they could say that the appropriate therapeutic response right. to the distress is to change the body. Yeah. rather than what the historic practice was, was people who feel uncomfortable in their body, for whatever reason, yeah. should be given therapy to help them feel comfortable. Right, but as a matter of documentation, how many people really have this malaise, this euphoria, this dysphoria? Um, I mean, isn't it sort of on the order of people who think maybe they should be a fish? Uh, you know, maybe no. God made me a red snapper, but I'm disguised it's, as a it's, boy. It's, it's, it's larger than that. I mean, it's, um, historically, it's been around 1% of the population. But it's also been that 80 to 95% of young people with gender dysphoria or gender identity disorder would naturally grow out of it. Right. Yeah, so right. what we're seeing now is that um, they're changing the therapeutic intervention for minors. Right. Yeah. from counseling to help them feel comfortable, counseling to help them have a more mature understanding of what it means to be a boy, what it means to be a girl, so they don't buy into stereotypes, to yeah. now giving them puberty-blocking drugs, to now right. giving them a new right. wardrobe, a new name. Yeah. Um, so whereas historically, you would have 80 to 95% of young people grow out of yeah. um, a, a gender-confused stage. We're now seeing in some studies of puberty-blocking drugs that 100% of the kids placed on puberty-blocking drugs yeah. persist 
right. in their transgender identity. Yeah. Right? But you it almost becomes a self-fulfilling protocol. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, you point out in the book some of the other roots um, that, that, for example, feminism, not all feminists, mm-hmm. but some, some the feminists. The second wave in particular. Because it, it's separating sex from roles maybe also homosexual lobby because it then also justifies certain way of acting. But I think, I mean, even we have to look at this because going all the way back somewhat like Humane Vitae, the separation of, of the sexual act from procreation starts right. to confuse the whole idea of sexuality. What is it for? Right. Right. You also right. point out, I think a really good point that we can also be a little bit to blame. Maybe we've been too stereotypical in the way we've dealt with boys and dealt with girls in there. We have a boy who's, who's sensitive and he doesn't fit into the macho stereotype. He's, he's in a way, culturally going to be sort of uh, pulled in a certain direction. So that it's a co- heady cocktail of issues, it seems. Oh, so, so, so un- underlying the political activism has been um, two generations worth of misguided philosophies. Um, so some of this, as you point out, started with second wave feminism. Right. Uh, someone like Simone de, Bo- de Beauvoir saying, you know, one's not born a woman, one becomes... Yeah. A woman with the idea being that gender is a social construct. Otherwise, we're an androgynous species, and then it's culture and society um, that creates different roles mm-hmm. for men and women. Uh, if it wasn't for a bad culture, we would see that we're interchangeable. And so it's a misguided notion of feminism that thought equality meant sameness, mm-hmm. um, which is surprising because what we're now seeing is that much of uh, transgender ideology is actually based on doubling down on sex stereotypes. Mm-hmm. That if you're a boy who plays with Barbie instead of playing with G.I. Joe, that might be a sign that you're actually a girl trapped in a boy's body. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so it's simultaneously they wanted to distinguish sex from gender, and now having distinguished it, they want to say, and if you fall into a certain type of gender, that gender identity should determine your sex. Right. Right. So, so you, you just mentioned that, that, that we look at it and we, they, they see this as, a, as a sex as a social construct. Mm-hmm. We're, we're hearing that in multiple places, that it's assigned at birth by a doctor. Right. Right. Not right. by God, not by you know, how you not were created. By reality, it, biology, it, no, no zones forever, forever right? organs. So, so how would you uh, deconstruct uh, that, that argument, you know, that, that, that this is simply a, a an assignment. This is simply a right. social uh, construct. Well, I mean, so the, the question here would be, if, if, if you say that gender identity is your, quote, internal sense of gender, right. what is it a sense of? What are you sensing? Yeah. Uh, what does it feel like, apart from having a male body, right. to feel like a man? Right. What does it feel like to feel like a woman? How would I know if I'm having the feelings of feeling like a woman, right. apart from having a woman's body? Um, the concept of sex only makes sense as a conceptual matter based upon sexually complementary male and female bodies. We're a sexually dimorphic species um, because they're two sexual reproductive systems. There's a male and a female. They're two gametes. There's egg and sperm. They're two sexual organs. Um, Apart from that, there's no objective way of defining men and women, male and female. Uh, organisms are um, classified by their organization, and it's our organization with respect to sexual reproduction right. that determines our sexual identity. Um, once you get away from that, all that's left is stereotypes. So that if you like um, uh, lipstick and nail polish, then you must be a woman. Right. Right? I mean, it, it, and that's why so many um, current feminists are upset when they see much of the transgender activism. Because when Bruce became Caitlyn, um, that cover image on Vanity Fair was a very stereotypical pinup image. Right, right. And they say, look, being a woman is more um, than 
uh, cleavage and nail polish and lipstick. And that some of the activists are actually doubling down on the stereotypes yeah. that we as feminists had fought to do away with. It's contradicting its own its own. Premise. Yes, there, there, there are lots of internal contradictions. And it's something I highlight in the book is, this, you know, I go through and I say, here's what the activists say. And then at the end of that chapter, I'm like, let me now point out all of the contradictions that were in their, their own words. Yeah, yeah, I wanna to go to some of those contradictions. Stay with us for the next segment. The National Catholic Bioethics Center says, properly understood, a person cannot change his or her sexual identity. A person is the unity of soul and body, and soul should be understood not as an immaterial self, but as that which makes the body be what it is, namely a human person. We are either male or female persons, and nothing can change that. A person can mutilate his or her genitals, but cannot change his or her sex. Changing one's sex is fundamentally impossible. When God created you, he made you like no other person. You are unique, singular, and unrepeatable. So shouldn't your college experience be the same? At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll find faith and reason, wisdom and grace, mercy and truth. You'll study under world-class scholars and seasoned practitioners who are committed to Christ and His Church. With over 40 majors and pre-professional programs, you'll find the formation you need to succeed. You'll discover lifelong friends and mentors who will welcome you, challenge you, and encourage you. Because we believe as Catholics, we are not called to hide from culture, but transform it. At Franciscan University, you'll find more than just a college. You'll find yourself in an educational experience as singular as you are. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. We've been talking with Dr. Ryan Anderson about his new book, When Harry Became Sally, uh, Responding to the Transgender Moment. So in, in the last segment, you brought up the fact that there are many contradictions within the arguments mm -hmm. here that they present. Let, let's give some examples. Let's, let's walk sure. that through because I think people need to understand this um, fully, because yeah. they, they, they need to be in a, have an articulate apologetic, if you will, um, both to the transgenderism um, as well as those that are even suffering to just have truth uh, be the foundation. Yeah. So, so what I point out in the book is that, um, to a certain extent, the transgender activists are reviving a new form of the ancient philosophy of Gnosticism, yes. in which the real self is something other than a material body. Mm. But simultaneously, um, many of these activists are materialists, yes. in which only material bodies exist. So how can you have it both ways? Huh. You only believe material bodies exist, but the real self is something other than the physical material right. body. Right. What is this real self that is, quote, trapped in the wrong body? Right. Yeah. right. Who or what? So which is it? Is it, it? And if it is, then why do you need to change the physical body? Which, which, leads, <laughs> which leads exactly, exactly to the next yeah. contradiction. If gender is a social construct and gender exists primarily between the ears and our thoughts and our feelings, why do we then have to change bodies? Why can't you just be a boy who enjoys playing with Barbie? Why does that make you a girl? And why does that therefore mean that we have to start having therapeutic interventions on your body mm. to transform you into 
a female body, which is impossible, right? So, so what we're really yes. doing is we're removing certain um, male parts and then using plastic surgery and hormones to try to mimic yeah. certain right. female parts. It's really mutilation, it it, really. It, you know, sadly. Yes. You know, I, I, the, uh, the Gnostic connection, which uh, you emphasize, I, I do think uh, is, is a wise move because it does evince a certain uh, dis-ease uh, with being in the body mm -hmm. uh, and a desire to escape, a kind of effortless leap into some other realm, maybe the pure ether of, of eternity. But then it's so immersed in matter that it's hardly a, a Gnostic impulse at all. But it does reach, I think, onto the plane of metaphysics. Of course. Because there is this basic abiding uh, unease with the body I've been given, mm -hmm. the way things are, I'm, I'm not uh, at peace with. I feel myself a stranger in this body, so I've got to get the hell out of it. Uh, and science and medicine are only too willing uh, to assist me. And, and that abdication, I, I think, is really, uh, really monstrous. Mm that people with, with PhDs would, would somehow traffic in this kind of grotesquerie. Yeah, and, the same and, and, and MDs. I mean, yeah, so frequently what they're yeah. doing is, I mean, you hit on the right word, metaphysics, yeah. but they're not arguing about this at the level of metaphysics and philosophy. Yeah. They're, they're claiming the authority of science and medicine to make what are ultimately bad philosophical arguments. Yeah. And because in our culture, who are the high priests? It's not the philosophers and the theologians, it's the doctors and the right, scientists. Right. Yeah. So they're relying on people with PhDs and MDs yeah. to make wild claims. Yeah. And, and, and your, your point about metaphysics, um, it really echoes something that John Paul II said uh, 50 years ago. It was, it was while he was a bishop at the Second Vatican Council, he said, the crisis of the 20th century is a crisis of faulty humanism. Yeah. Right, and then his entire papacy was about promoting yeah. an authentic anthropology. Right, and it was faulty anthropology that got us the two world wars, the three totalitarian regimes, uh, the Gulag, the Holocaust. He then extended that analysis to the scourge of abortion. I think right. we can now extend it to the redefinition of marriage, and now the redefinition of sex and, and gender. It's a it's getting the human person wrong. And, 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 the ide and this ideology doesn't seem too concerned about the contradictions because it's, in the end there's a political game and if you can play the right cards. So there's other contradictions you mentioned, for example, at one level it seems that people are arguing that sex is completely fluid or gender is yep. completely fluid. And on the other hand, they're saying, no, I am this and I'm trapped. So it depends which card you play. The scientific card, it's like, this is scientific truth. You know, transgenderism is saying, we have the science and yet shut down the debate completely so that's not a scientific mode of action, yeah? No. Science should be open to different hypotheses and discussing it. So there's, there's some really deep-seated, somewhat sinister contradictions. It, it's a power play. Um, so you have very poor uh, scientific evidence, um, low-quality studies, um, short-time, um, non-rigorous um, uh, sampling techniques, so they're not random, they're not representative, they don't test people longitudinally, and yet they're saying the science is settled and they're shutting down voices of anyone who would uh, raise questions. Yeah. Um, and, and then uh, um, how they actually understand uh, what it is to be a man or a woman is not based on any science at all. Yeah. Uh, if they want to say simultaneously, you know, I have this innate immutable identity as the opposite sex, but it can also be fluid and it can also exist along a spectrum. So other people, their innate immutable identity could be that they're a man one day 
a woman the next day, both the third day, right. and neither the fourth day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Because simultaneously, they, they want to say that gender exists along the spectrum, mm-hmm. and it's fluid, and for some people, they can go back and forth. Right. It's just a remarkable set of philosophical yeah. Yeah. Isn't the implication here that somehow God made a mistake? He fell asleep at the switch mm-hmm. when he assigned this, uh, this uh, inappropriate uh, uh, sex uh, at birth, and I awaken to discover that really I'm not who God made me. Uh, the givenness of my being, there's, I reject. There's no givenness um, to creation, or th- they wouldn't even use the word creation. They would just say there's no givenness to nature. Yeah. There, there, there's, there's, there's no um, natural realities or natural truths right. that have any implications for how we ought to live. Everything is malleable, right. and we are the sovereign. Yeah, and we our are the will, center of our own. And, and our will yeah. should reshape everything. Yeah. There's no meaning out there that we should conform our thoughts yeah. and our feelings and our desires and our will right. to. Yeah. Everything is, uh, is a construct. Yeah. And with, with that malleability, saying this flexibility, sometimes you'll get the objection and say, well, there is, because look, some people seem to be half man, half woman. Right. We have these development orders in, in sex, sexual development. I mean, how, how does that factor into the discussion? Sure. I mean, th- th- there are um, a host of well-understood and well-documented um, disorders of sexual development. Uh, the acronym is DSD, uh, and hospitals all across the nation um, deal with this on a daily basis. Uh, a small fraction of a fraction of Americans um, experience a disorder of sexual development, and those are all physical uh, realities. In the same way that you could have a disorder of cardiac development, we would call it heart disease, or a disorder of respiratory development, we would call it lung disease. Um, it doesn't question what a functioning respiratory system looks like, or what a functioning cardiac system, uh, circulatory system looks like. And in the same way for either chromosomal or hormonal reasons, our reproductive systems um, can have disorders in their development, uh, which sometimes can lead to cases where someone might have ambiguous genitalia or might have um, uh, uh, certain organs of the opposite sex. Um, But this has never led people to think that therefore there's a third sex, or that therefore sex is merely assigned. Uh, it led them to realize that there can be various diseases and disorders uh, and, and disabilities with respect to development in the same way that some people are born without all of their limbs. Mm-hmm. They can have physical mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, um, disorders. And those physical disorders can involve the reproductive system. And to those people, would they ever identify themselves as transgender? A very small percentage do, but it, it, it's, it's um, uh, not necessarily based upon their disorder of sexual development. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that people, for a variety of reasons, right. can experience gender dysphoria, and some of those people might have a disorder of sexual development. Mm-hmm. Um, but many of them, they know uh, uh, who they are, their sexual identity, even if they don't have a fully developed yeah. uh, reproductive system. You know, uh, I, I think this, this may be important. Uh, It's almost paralyzing, really, to try to have a conversation uh, with these people because they begin with the notion that nature is is sort of infinitely elastic, Mm -hmm. like saltwater taffy. You can twist it and pull it in any bloody direction you please. So there's a total absence of a standard that is fixed, some paradigm that doesn't shift, but that is anchored in reality. If they don't recognize that, where do you join issue with these people. And and that's what makes the conversation so difficult to have right now. And so it may be that um, we're unable to dialogue with the most ardent, hardcore activists on transgender issues. Um, 
in which case, um, who we should be speaking to and who the book is yeah. written for is not the hardcore ardent right. transgender right. activists. Yeah. It's written for ordinary Americans who just want to know what's the truth of the matter. Yeah. People like our viewers right now, right. they're not hardcore activists, they're not right. ideologues, they just want to know what is true about human nature and about the human body and the human person and how can we understand this. And, and, and the point you just made about there's no fixed yeah. point, um, I quote several um, bioethicists and philosophers of medicine, including Leon Cass, Dr. Leon Cass yeah. is an MD, PhD. And he points out that for the practice of medicine to, to, to actually function, uh, it needs to have an understanding of what its purpose is. Yeah. Its purpose is healing. Right. Healing is about bringing wholeness. And so you need to have a standard or an ideal or something that you look to of what it means to right. be healing people and bringing wholeness. His fear, and he's been writing about this for 30, 40 years now, right, right. is that the medical profession is simply becoming a technique yep. um, that's being used for whatever ends the technician or whoever is paying the technician desires. Right. And he uses yep. the image of, he, he used the phrase, uh, a medical doctor is now a highly competent hired syringe. Right. Mm. Oh my God. And he was writing this in the context of assisted suicide. Yeah. You know, doctors shouldn't be killing their patients because that's the antithesis right. of healing and wholeness. Yes. Yeah. yeah, if you instrumentalize medicine in that way, you invite uh, chaos, uh, a nightmare world. Mm -hmm. When the means become autonomous, uh, then mm -hmm. they become deadly. Mm -hmm. I mean, C.S. Lewis uh, uh, seized upon that point uh, when he talked about the poison of subjectivism. Mm -hmm. if, if that prevails, then we have no argument we can make against Adolf Hitler. You just do as you please. It becomes a function of power. I mean, that's the, that's the definition of barbarism, the total absence of a standard to which everybody has some recourse for appeal. There's no standard. Which is why, in, in response to the Holocaust, you saw a number of thinkers uh, from a variety of disciplines and backgrounds kind of rediscover the natural law tradition. Yeah. Uh, you have people like Leo Strauss writing right. natural rights in history. Uh, you have various uh, Catholic thinkers, Jacques Maritain, Yves Simone, John Finnis, yeah. uh, publishing important books on natural law theory. And you have C.S. Lewis himself with the abolition of man, right, right, right. more or less representing natural law thinking without using that phrase. It was a very uh, smart rhetorical yeah. technique. Well, that was a prophetic work, and it really does sort of anticipate in an uncanny way the developments that your book describes. I think it was written in 1947, yeah. The Abolition of Man. But it really does uh, uh, it really does demonstrate that we are witnessing the almost total eclipse of any sense of who man is. Yep. But the doctors are, 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 in a certain sense, their hands are tied, or they're coerced as far as I understand, because if, if a small child comes in consistently saying that they, they're, they're a boy, but they're consistently saying they're a girl, they're having this dysphoria, that in a certain sense, in some places, they're not allowed to, to treat them other than along that trajectory, because then that's considered malpractice to actually try and deal, deal with it in the classical it's, psychological way. It's now seven or eight states have passed laws um, saying that a physician can lose his or her medical license if they practice what the state calls conversion therapy. And by conversion therapy, they, they include talking with a five-year-old boy about what he finds distressing about being a boy and what he finds attractive about being a girl and talking to that boy to help him feel comfortable in his own body. Because mm -hmm. they consider that conversion of his yeah. true gender identity, mm -hmm. which right. is female. But in those same states, if you give right. that boy a new wardrobe and a new name, 
If you give that boy when he's 10 puberty blocking drugs, if you give that boy uh, when he's 15 estrogen, that's perfectly legal. That's child so, abuse. So transition <laughs> yeah. isn't considered conversion therapy, right. but simply talking to a minor, you could lose your medical license mm-hmm. in seven or eight states now. I think this is shocking. I mean, that, that, it, that medical yes. scientists, that laws, that politicians are getting behind what, what, what amounts to child abuse. It's really. entirely experimental. They have no idea what the long-term consequences will be yeah. for blocking puberty on a child indefinitely, mm-hmm. on giving a teenage girl testosterone. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable. Uh, Stay with us for the next segment. Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2393, states, By creating the human being, man and woman, God gives personal dignity equally to the one and the other. Each of them, man and woman, should acknowledge and accept his sexual identity. You don't have to trade top-flight academic programs for a passionately Catholic identity. You can have both. At Franciscan University of Steubenville, you'll not only deepen your faith, you'll be prepared for real-world success by dedicated professors for whom excellence isn't just a goal, but the standard. Ready to get started? Check out franciscan.edu. Welcome back to Franciscan University Presents. This entire program springs forth from the very heart of Franciscan University in Steubenville, Ohio. Our students are operating the cameras and equipment here in the control room. Our panelists are theology professors here at the university. But we've been talking about a very important topic, uh, the transgender moment uh, with Dr. Ryan Anderson. so we've talked quite a bit about both the ideology, the activist approach. We've talked about um, some of the challenges and the contradictions within the, the, the arguments. But let's talk about what, what are the, the gender experts today proposing? What are they doing? And, and sure. Let's I mean, walk this, through that. Th- this is really um, shocking. And, and we hit on this just at the very end of that last segment. But they have a four-part standard of care that yeah. they have developed yeah. that they're now promulgating across the nation. They've opened up 45 pediatric gender clinics in the past decade. Uh, a decade ago, the very first one opened, and now there are 45. And this is what their um, standard of care looks like. The first step is called social transition. Hmm. For a child as young as three or four years old, if that child is persistent, insistent, and consistent that they are the opposite sex, Uh, Parents are being told what you should do is give your child a new name, uh, a new pronoun, a new wardrobe, and access to new bathrooms and locker rooms and sports teams. You should treat that child as if he or she is the opposite sex. So the first step is a social transition. Then, um, as the child is approaching puberty, they should be placed on puberty-blocking drugs to indefinitely block them from going through puberty in the, quote, wrong body. Because if they actually are a girl trapped in a boy's body, it would be very distressing, according to these gender experts, for them to develop in a male body or to develop in a female uh, body. The drug that they use is not FDA approved for this purpose. It was tested and developed and then FDA approved for teaching, uh, treating a condition known as precocious puberty. It's the early onset of puberty. Right. So uh, uh, doctors developed a drug that would delay puberty to an age-appropriate time, biologically okay. appropriate time. They're now using the drug off-label to indefinitely block puberty. Wow. 
But then you run into a problem, and this leads to the third step of the protocol, because you now have a 14, 15, 16-year-old girl uh, who's trapped in adolescence. Yeah. Right? She's never developed. We have a 14, 15, 16-year-old boy who's trapped in adolescence, hasn't developed. So you have to mimic the opposite sex's puberty. So they'll give that girl testosterone. They'll give that boy estrogen. Wow. And then the fourth um, step is at age 18, uh, these teenagers uh, could now have surgery uh, in an attempt to, quote, reassign sex. Right. Uh, this can include top surgery um, and or bottom surgery, uh, the removal of certain um, reproductive organs, genitalia, secondary sex characteristics, and then the cosmetic uh, surgery to try to create things that mimic the opposite sex's bodies. Right. But it all it is just that. It's a mimic. It's a physical facade, but that has no... They don't actually There's reassign nothing, sex. Yeah, they're, 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 it's impossible to reassign and, sex. And presumably with blocking uh. the puberty, you might actually be sort of blocking a kind of flourishing which might actually help psychologically to lead. So if you've got a young boy who doesn't feel comfortable as a boy, he maybe identifies with a girl, he may actually flourish into a man by the process of puberty. Exactly, right. yeah? That's w w one of the things that um, I point out in the book is I quote several um, psychiatrists and other medical experts who are concerned that this is a self-reinforcing protocol. Mm -hmm. right. That by encouraging a child to live as if the opposite sex and then blocking that child's natural biological development, you may actually be locking in the gender dysphoria mm -hmm. and the transgender yeah. identity. Mm -hmm. That it may very well be going through puberty in a boy's body, the rush of testosterone, the development into manhood mm -hmm. that helps a child grow out of yeah. gender dysphoria. It has yeah. been the norm for 80 to 95% of children would normally reconcile for those natural. who question or have yeah. questions or confusion you know the, the obscenity really of what you're describing is breath catching we literally don't know what we're doing because there are we no don't know what we're undoing there are no long-term studies yeah. on the long-term consequences of indefinitely blocking yeah. puberty on a child we don't know what the physical consequences are in terms of organ development bone density height <sighs> weight physiological psychological all the or yeah or the mental part because they, 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 they're doing an experiment. And as far as yeah. I understand, you, you point out there's this, I think it's Kenneth Zucker from yes. Toronto. So he was, he was all up for, for adults, but he made a distinction. He thought, child, you can't do this on children. Yeah. And, you know, he was an ex And they shut down his clinic. Yeah. He, he was doing this for 30 years. He was running a very successful gender clinic in Toronto, where for some of his patients, some of his adult patients, he would counsel a reassignment. Oh. But for his uh, 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 ch childhood patients, he counseled therapy. How can we talk to a child to try to uncover what it is that they find distressing about yeah. their bodily sex, what it is that they find right. attractive about the opposite sex, and then address those underlying causes? Um, and unfortunately, after 30 years of running his clinic very successfully, activists targeted him, and the government shut it down. Um, but what would he do? I actually, in, in um, chapter six of the book, I go through two case studies that actually come out of his clinic. Uh, and I'll briefly mention them because I think they'll be helpful uh, for viewers to think about what the alternative mm -hmm. looks like. If you think puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones are a bad idea, what's the good idea? Uh, in one case, there was a young boy who was identifying as a girl. His parents uh, take him to see the therapist. The therapist just sits down and starts talking with the child. And the child reveals that he's being bullied. Uh, he's not a very big, macho, rambunctious mm -hmm. kid. And the other boys in his class are calling him a wuss and a sissy uh, and all the rest. So he's now um, forming closer friendships with the girls in his class, and his interests are now more stereotypically feminine. And as a coping mechanism for the bullying, 
um, he's now thinking that he's actually a girl trapped in a boy's body. Right. So the therapist suggests three things. One, remove your child from that environment. It's a toxic environment. The bullying is one of the contributing factors to the gender dysphoria. Two, keep bringing your son to the clinic so we can talk with him, so we can develop a more robust understanding of masculinity. So he can understand that real boys can be just like him, that real boys can be sensitive, real boys can be sweet. Um, not um, all real boys are jerks. Right? He has a very narrow understanding of gender. We have to have, have him a more uh, mature understanding. And then lastly, for a young child, you can't just talk to them about these things. They need to experience it. Mm -hmm. um, so you need to help your child find a friend group of boys like him. Help him to find a peer group so then he can experience that he is a real boy because he sees all these other boys mm -hmm. who are like him. So when the parents did this, a year later, the child was identifying as a boy again. He was spared a lifetime of hormone therapy and surgical complications mm -hmm. and, and a very difficult road of trying to live as if the opposite sex. It's not easy mm -hmm. to live as if the opposite yeah. sex. They were able to spare yeah. that from that child. So in, instead of promoting uh, this madness, uh, they reach into the area under the hood, his head, uh, and they have a therapy, talk therapy, yep. counseling, instead of changing the equipment that's down right. below. That, that strikes me as very sensible. It, it's the historic approach. Uh, so yep. Dr. Paul McHugh, who yes, was the yes, yes. Uh, chair of psychiatry at um, Johns Hopkins Medical School, the psychiatrist-in-chief at Johns Hopkins Hospital, he shut down the Johns Hopkins Sex Reassignment Clinic back in the 70s. Uh -huh. He thought it was bad medicine. And for 40 years, it remained shut down until a year and a half ago when Hopkins reopened it due to political pressure. I see. But what McHugh does is he draws an analogy between gender dysphoria and anorexia. Uh, he says that both conditions, you have body identity struggles, people who have a body image right, struggle, yeah. they're based on false assumptions about themselves. In the one case, you have a girl who thinks that she's unattractive, she's overweight, and yeah. no one would suggest that the appropriate therapy is liposuction. Right? Everyone agrees the appropriate therapy is how can we help the individual feel comfortable in her right, own body. Right, right. And he says, by analogy, the same thing is true for the young girl who feels like she's a boy. The response shouldn't be testosterone. Right. The response should be various forms of talk therapy to help right. that young girl feel comfortable being a girl. Yeah. Um, maybe she's interested in things that are stereotypically masculine. Right. Maybe she's interested in hunting. That doesn't mean that she's a boy trapped in a girl's body. Girls can hunt. Right. That's right. That's right. And, and that's what we have. To, my, my wife was a championship shotgun shooter at Hillsdale. Right. Yeah. That doesn't mean that she was a boy trapped in a girl's body. We need to have, thankfully, her parents had a much more capacious understanding of what's appropriate for boys and girls. And therefore, she grew up knowing yeah. that she could be comfortable being who she is. Right. This is true across the board. And the parents' role must be pretty significant here. I mean, I mean, all parents deal, I mean, every child has developmental struggles. Right. Yeah, of course, these are maybe extreme developmental struggles, but, but it seems that parents have a particular role, but the parents are also under pressure, that sometimes yes. they, they worry that actually they'll lose custody of their children if they don't, if they don't go along with a certain project. Back um, at the end of winter, uh, the beginning of spring, uh, here in Ohio, it was in That's Cincinnati, right. parents lost custody of their 17-year-old daughter because she wants to transition to be a boy, wants to go on testosterone therapy. And the local hospital um, told Child Protective Services and a judge that unless she does this, uh, she'll be at risk for committing suicide. And so the parents are being 
um, negligent. Mm -hmm. They're being neglectful. They're mm -hmm. being abusive. But the suicide so, statistics are no different either side of transition. Is which is, I mean, so what's really sad here is that the, the reality is that for adults, 41% uh, of adults who identify as transgender attempt suicide at some point in their lives. Yeah. And that um, uh, adults who have had sex reassignment surgery 19 times more likely to die by suicide than the general population. Mm -hmm. And that's a study from Sweden. Uh, it was a long-term study, and it showed that 10 years after sex reassignment surgery was when many of these suicidal thoughts and the suicide attempts and then the completed suicides uh -huh. started to manifest themselves. And the Swedes are a particularly uh, progressive, tolerant yes. uh, 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 culture. Right? It's not like this is the Bible Belt where you know, it's because Swedish people were rejecting mm -hmm. people who identify as transgender. It's that it's very difficult uh, to live as if the opposite sex. Because yeah. you're rejecting your very nature. And you're not addressing the underlying causes right. that right. made you feel uncomfortable in your own body. Too. Like that bullying, like the whatever. The bullying, there could be trauma, there, there, there could be abuse. Uh, there, there are a variety of factors that right. can contribute to gender dysphoria, right. and you want to address those factors. Well, how do these proponents of, of this new, really quite revolutionary technology, how do they cope with statistics like that? Because they're pretty shocking and so, pretty instructive. I mean, they, they will say things like, well, partly it's because those studies are outdated. Uh, we're now better at identifying who is, quote, really transgender and only transitioning the real transgender people. Um, that some of those statistics were people who shouldn't have transitioned. And they think oh. now can, they can more accurately oh, identify, yeah. you know, which five-year-old boy That's is really it. the girl. Yeah. Uh, but it's ludicrous to think that, 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 that you, know, you can identify which five-year-old boy is really going to be. Uh, but then secondly, they'll say it's because of stigma. Uh, they'll say oh. that the reason why um, people who have gender dysphoria also have increased rates of anxiety and depression and substance abuse and alcohol abuse and suicide ideation is not because of some underlying yeah. uh, problem. It's because of people like you and me we're not and our viewers are, yeah. are, are stigmatizing them. Right. It, it, looking at all this, look at the issue that, that came up in Ohio uh, right. most recently. Looking at the bathroom uh, issue from uh, the Obama administration mm -hmm. in the past and so many other states now that have... This seems like a, a direct threat to religious liberty, too, mm -hmm. in addition to uh, the abuse that's going on. I mean, w what impacts does this have on, on religious liberty in our country? This is going to be, um, if you think back to the contraception mandate, mm -hmm. um, the transgender mandate is the contraception mandate on steroids, yeah. uh, literally. Yeah. Uh, and what's going to happen here, there are two Catholic hospitals that are being sued under state law, uh, one in New Jersey and one in California, mm. because they refuse to do sex reassignment procedures. So everything that we thought we had successfully navigated in the pro-life context, Catholic physicians don't have to perform abortions, hospitals don't have to provide abortions, healthcare doesn't have to pay for abortions, we're now going to have to wrestle with on sex reassignment procedures. Will um, Catholic and other, I mean, it's not, because it's also, it's not just Catholics or evangelicals or Orthodox right. Jews or Latter-day Saints. Many doctors, regardless of their religious background, That's regardless right. of their moral beliefs, simply think this is bad medicine. That's right. So simply their best medical judgment is that the appropriate therapeutic response should be um, addressing the thoughts and the feelings, not tinkering with the body. Mm -hmm. Well, they have freedom to practice medicine 
simply according to the Hippocratic Oath. That's right. I mean, that's, that's how deep it goes. Yeah. Yeah. This, this seems critical because while as Catholics we, we hold things very strongly in regard to matters of sexuality, it's a human issue. That's yes. right. And it wouldn't it's be a good idea if, if, they, if the other side was able to sort of put us in a corner that we're just it's defending just faith something only. religious. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's exactly this right. This, this permeates our human condition. Th- the best of biology, psychology, philosophy, they all suggest that um, sex is a bodily, biological reality, right. and gender is the social manifestation and expression yeah. Yeah. of that bodily reality. Yeah, yeah. Stay with us for the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. Pope St. John Paul II states in his letter to families, Man is created from the very beginning as male and female. The light of all humanity is marked by this primordial duality. From it there derive the masculinity and the femininity of individuals. Just as from it every community draws its own unique richness in the mutual fulfillment of persons. Hence, one can discover at the very origins of human society the qualities of communion and of complementarity. Explore the treasures of your Catholic heritage on a Franciscan University pilgrimage. Led by inspiring spiritual directors, you'll walk in the footsteps of saints and martyrs in the Holy Land, Poland, France, and Italy. And you'll deepen your love for Jesus Christ through daily Mass, confession, prayer, and the joy of Christian fellowship. Let Franciscan University lead you on a pilgrimage of faith. Find out more at franciscan.edu slash pilgrimages. Welcome to the final segment of Franciscan University Presents. Uh, we've been talking about the transgender moment with Dr. Ryan Anderson, and this is uh, kind of a wrap-up. Uh, Regis, could you start us off? Yeah, what, what strikes me as, uh, as important uh, uh, is the distinction uh, that needs to be made between nature uh, and, and grace. This is not a religious issue. This is not yes. something narrowly ecclesiastical. This is really a defense of nature, the structure of being, what we might call the syntax or grammar of who we are. And, and people of goodwill, of, despite their religious persuasion, ought to rally round that particular flag. We're trying to uphold the integrity of nature, mm. that which is, the givenness of, of being. I, I'm reminded of Belloc's uh, quip that the moral is, it is indeed, thou shalt not monkey with the creed. And he's talking about uh, the articles of faith, the axioms of the Apostles' Creed. But I think by extension, by analogy, we can talk about the creed of the cosmos. You know, nature is a parable. It's structured in a certain way. There's a design, a, a teleology. It's got a purpose. And, and if you abandon that, if you take leave of it or forget it, then all kinds of madness uh, is allowed to fill that vacuum. And I think that's precisely what's happening. And what I would urge is what Leon Cass had recommended some years ago, that we cultivate a certain wisdom of repugnance. Mm-hmm. That what these people are proposing is really unspeakable. Mm-hmm. It's unhuman. It's anti-human. And we, we ought to stand and fight it uh, on, that, uh, on that basis. I, I think of that crazy attorney general, Loretta uh, uh, Lynch, mm-hmm. during the Obama years, uh, uh, launching that suit against North Carolina yeah. because they were, they were so uh, 
uh, insensitive as to assign bathrooms based on biology. And she's saying, look, it's no more acceptable to do that than it is to refuse black and white people access uh, to uh, the same bathroom. Yep. As if skin color and, and gender are, are somehow interchangeable categories. I mean, I think you quote Orwell that there, there are some ideas so stupid that only an academic <laughs> or a philosopher or a bureaucrat could possibly defend. And that's one of them. And then you have the NBA boycotting Charlotte, North Carolina, because uh, they, want to, they want to express their solidarity with this transgender uh, uh, moment, when in fact they separate themselves on the basis of sex. If you're a woman, it doesn't matter how Amazonian you are. You can't play basketball uh, for the Knicks. Uh, you've, you've got to be a guy. Where is the sanity here. We have to appeal to that, and I hope there's enough of it left in, in the common, ordinary folk that we can beat back this demonic offensive mm. against reality. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Regis. William. Yeah, I'm reminded of the uh, Lord's words about being as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves, because I think we have to have a sort of serpent about her and a dove about us. Uh, we have to have a dove about us in regards to those who are actually suffering from, tra uh, from gender disorders. Uh, as you said, it's like anorexia. You can't just say to somebody, look, pull your socks up, right, cut, out, yeah. cut it out. You know, there's something deeply wounded there which needs uh, healing. Um, but on the other hand, we have to have the kind of firmness, the serpent-like firmness with the transgenderism as an ideology because it's just extremely harmful to everybody. It's harmful to these young children who are suffering from gender dysphoria. They're encouraged to be locked into things, you know, drastic life-changing decisions because of a feeling they have at the age of five. This can't be the right way to treat such a person. Yeah. And it's, it's very, very noxious in regards to the formation of our children in a right understanding uh, of uh, sexual identity. I mean, what do we need? You, you list this in your book, some great suggestions. We need good researchers who show again and again the science is on our side. We need good pastoral care. We need lawyers who are going to defend people who will stand up. Doctors who stand up are going to need lawyers right. to defend them. We need just mums and dads just doing the day-in, day-out thing with their kids, raising them in the truth. And we need narratives. You gave us a narrative, it's very compelling. We need uh, more of those narratives. But it's a fight, as I think Paul McHugh says in there, um, hell have no theory, uh, hell have no fury yeah. as an invested interest masquerading as a moral principle. That's you would add, and masquerading as science. That's right. Yeah, but yeah. this fight we've got to win because uh, it's confusing. If it confuses people about sexuality, it undermines marriage. That's right. And as John Paul II reminded us uh, so long ago, but so importantly, that the future of humanity passes by way of marriage and yes. family. That's right. That's right. Ryan. So, so much has already been said. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, let me echo some of those themes. Um, I, I think one of the most important things um, that any of us can do uh, is to refuse to be bullied into silence. Mm. The main technique of the left on this issue, uh, and they've targeted Dr. McHugh, they've targeted other people, is to try to stigmatize anyone who would be a truth teller and to make them pay a price so that other people will go silent. Yeah. Um, the number of people who helped me on this book, doctors and professors and lawyers, who said, I can help you, but you can never mention my name publicly because I could lose my job. Wow. They're not being cowards. 
they're being very realistic about what their current employment situation is. If they don't have tenure, if their hospital doesn't provide any sort of job security, if they're at a major law firm but they're not a law partner, um, their livelihood's on the line. Uh, And so what we need to do are find institutions that can provide people uh, with the job security um, to tell the truth in a variety of disciplines. So we need public interest law firms who can be uh, litigating on behalf of uh, of doctors, uh, litigating on behalf of parents. Uh, We need uh, pastoral training uh, for priests. What the Courage Ministry has done on same-sex attraction, um, a, a, a network needs to be created for pastoral responses to people struggling with gender dysphoria. Yeah. Um, what the pro-life movement did with crisis pregnancy centers, yeah. um, someone's going to have to create, if you don't want to take your child to one of those 45 pediatric right. gender clinics, where do you take your child? Mm. Uh, one of the things that's been very uh, challenging for me is I'm now getting emails and Facebook messages and Twitter direct messages from people saying, we're experiencing this in our family where do we go? And frequently they're in a part of the country where I don't know where to suggest they go. Um, And so we're going to need, maybe it'll be the counseling program here at Franciscan or the nursing program that'll start developing the next generation of clinicians who can practice good medicine on these issues. I mean, there's a lot of work to be done pastorally, um, in counseling, legally. And then lastly, something for all of us to do, uh, which is simply to respond lovingly to those who are struggling um, but also not to allow the ideologues and the activists um, to go unchallenged when they're promoting a harmful ideology. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you for being with us on the show. Um, if you enjoy today's topic, and this is, this is something we need to be aware of, come to faithandreason.com or just contact us. We have some great work from uh, Dr. Ryan Anderson on the transgender moment and the contradictions within that worldview. I want to invite you to be a part of Franciscan University's mission um, to educate, to evangelize, and send forth joyful disciples by coming to our campus here in Steubenville, taking classes, earning your degree, or online uh, through our programs there. Join us at our summer conferences as well as pilgrimages around the world, and go to faithandreason.com to be equipped uh, for the new evangelization. Uh, Dr. Anderson's talk that he gave here on campus as well as other great resources. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you. To download the free handout on today's topic, go to faithandreason.com. Email your request for the handout to presents at franciscan.edu. At faithandreason.com, you can also purchase past episodes of Franciscan University Presents or request today's free handout and purchase past programs by calling 888-333-0381. That's 888-333-0381. Or call 740-283-6357.